Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, hey there. Good morning, Redemption. How are you guys? Good. Awesome. Hey, um, so uh, if you got your Bible, turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. That's where we'll be hanging out today as we're continuing our series, Live by Faith. And so while you're digging around for Habakkuk, because uh, most of you guys probably are kind of a little lost trying to find it. It's a small book buried in your Old Testament. Um, so while you're digging around, um, I want to set up uh, today for us. I got two quick things. Um, first is, in the month of August, we're going to be kicking off a new sermon series called Best sermon ever. If you could throw that up there. Um, best sermon ever. And so this is the month of August. What I've done is this, is I've gone to four of um, the wisest, godliest, uh, smartest, and most knowledgeable people that I know, and I've asked them to come and serve our church by preaching for the month of August. And so um, these four people, uh, without their love and wisdom, uh, redemption would not exist. Um, so these are some of our elders, some of our, uh, my best friends when it comes to ministry. And I've asked them to go back over the years of sermons that they've preached and preach the very best sermon ever, the one they've had the most fun with, the one that meant the most to them. So they're going to come here to redemption and they're going to serve our body by being able to minister to us in that. And so I am super excited for this series uh, for a couple of reasons. One is because I get to worship with you guys. Uh, Me and my wife will sit here, we'll raise our hands, we'll worship, we'll sing, we'll serve, we'll take communion together. And so I am super excited about being able to do that with you guys. Um, And so what 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 I want you to do is I want you to come, I want you to invite a friend, I want you to be excited about this, just as excited as I am. But what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to think, oh, well, Byron's not preaching, so I don't have to come. Because you're going to want to be here. It's going to be amazing. So you want to grab a friend, you're going to come, and you want to hang out for best sermon ever. My hope is, my plan is, that this will become a uh, tradition for us as a church. That every summer as we're kind of coming in, we're going to get some of the best Bible preaching uh, into this church and just be able to, to learn from some of the wisest people that I know personally. So best sermon ever. Last week, we kicked off Habakkuk. And here's what we, here's what we wrestled with. Um, we're wrestling with the why question. Um, And so Habakkuk, the major theme of this book is faith. So we did a overview, kind of a history lesson. And then we looked at this issue of faith. And as we closed out, I told you this, that faith is like a muscle. And so we need to exercise our faith. Faith is like a muscle and muscles grow by the tearing of the fibers. And so where where, where doubt and trust, where they exist together, that is where our faith grows. And so this is where we find ourselves today in Habakkuk. And so we'll start in um, chapter one. That's where we'll be at. We're gonna do the entire chapter today. And so we'll start in one. And this is what um, he says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, the oracle is a word that we don't use very often when it comes to like, life today, unless you are kind of like a sci-fi nerd. You know, It's been a while since we've seen um, the matrix, right? Um, but the oracle here literally means a burden, that the message that God has given Habakkuk for him was a burden. He didn't want to carry it. It was a message he did not want to preach, and he wanted to try to get out from underneath it. So as we see, when we come to the scriptures, sometimes there is just kind of hard things in life. When we look at it, when we look at the scriptures, we see that, that, that Christ and culture tend to collide. And so for me, whenever I came into faith, um, I tell you guys all the time, I was kind of raised in church. I learned how to do all the churchy things. I kind of navigated my way through the religious uh, paradigm, right? Um, but as a teenager, I just walked away. 
And so when God won my heart at the age of 20, when, when Christ won my heart and I came back into the church, I was pretty skeptical about most things. I, I was kind of a skeptic peering over the fence into Christianity and trying to take a look at it. Now, because I had been raised in church and when I came into faith, there was a lot of things that I just kind of rejected from my childhood, rejected from my upbringing. And I said, when I come into faith, I want to have an open heart. I want to have an open mind. And so I looked at the scriptures for themselves and I didn't believe in a whole lot. Okay, so all I knew was Jesus loves me and I want to learn to love him more. And so when it came to the scriptures, I did not believe in the Bible. I didn't believe in the Bible. I didn't believe in miracles. For me, when I came back into faith, um, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know, I didn't understand. And so what I did was I started reading um, pretty much anything and everything that I could get my hands on. So I started reading books, I started reading blogs, I started listening to podcasts, uh, whatever I could do to learn so I could wrestle with this. And so through that, um, I started reading a bunch of dead guys, started reading a bunch of philosophy, theology, and so some apologetics. And I came to the conclusion that, yeah, this book is real. This, this book happened. This is real, true, historically. It's also true for us spiritually. So I came to the conclusion that this was real because very early on, Christ and culture collided and I had to take a pick of which one I was gonna follow because I couldn't walk down two paths at the same time. So if you, if you know me, if you ask my wife, like I'm the guy who when I do something, I do it all the way. I don't, I don't do it half-heartedly. I go all in. And so when it came to this, I was like, okay, God, I'm gonna follow you. You say this is for my ultimate joy. I'm gonna trust in you. And there were some moments where it was very challenging. There were some moments where there was a lot of heartbreak. There were some moments where I did not want to follow Jesus in that. But I can tell you 10 years on, still learning, listening, and obeying, I have no regrets. And so when I came to the scripture, as I said, Christ and culture are going to collide. And sometimes for some of us, that collision will be messy. And so what I began, I just started studying and I came to a lot of conclusions and say, I can explain to you what this means. I can explain to you how this happened. I can explain to you where first century Palestine, you know, ancient Israel, I can explain to you all of those things. But there's one thing that I still have not understood. There's one thing that I still wrestle with to this day. I can tell you the what, the where, the when, the how, but I still wrestle with the why. It's the why that gets me. 10 years in, I still struggle with why. When I look around at the world, I, I still see pain or suffering or injustice, and I say, God, why? And so this is where Habakkuk is at. In Habakkuk's day, he's wrestling with the why question. And this is what we're going to be taking a look at because in Habakkuk's day, the people were wicked, the nation was corrupt, the kings were, the kings were corrupt, even the people that God has chosen to, to, to serve spiritually the nation, they were even profiting off of the greed of people. And, and so Habakkuk's looking around and he's wrestling with this and he is wrestling with the why question. And so I believe that all of us in this room have at one time been at the place to where we wrestle with why. Anybody wrestling with why? You look around and you say, God, why? And if you're not at that place, then, 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 then one day, I, I tell you, one day you will be there. That you will be at that why question. I guarantee you that the people around you, whether it's at work or whether it's in your family, whether it's uh, your friends or, or, or your children, I can guarantee you they're all asking the why question too. 
And so when it comes to living by faith and, and looking and learning from Habakkuk's life, I don't only want you to, to look at Habakkuk 2,600 years ago and consider this as his own problem. I want you to be able to, if you're brave enough, if you have the courage to enter into your own pain, to enter into your own problems, to enter into our own culture and to, to, to learn from Habakkuk and what Habakkuk is wrestling with. And so here, what we'll see, there are three, there are four ways that we can respond to pain. Three right ways, one wrong way. So there's three right ways that we can respond to pain and one wrong way. Well, check it out here in verse two through four. Our first natural temptation is for us to avoid the problem of pain. This is what he says. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry out for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. In our lives, there is a natural tendency for us to try to avoid the problem of pain, for us to try to avoid God-ordained pain. So this is the first one. We avoid pain. All of our lives is set up to live as comfortably as possible and to try to escape the problems of pain. We can see it in all of our lives. We can see it in our work. We can see it in our families. We can see it in our hobbies, that our natural tendency is to try to live comfortably and escape the burden of pain. So what are some ways that we tend to do this? Well, we can look at it first. One of the ways that we avoid pain is within people. So, so times get tough. Things are going hard. So we try to escape pain by, by surrounding ourselves with other people. Could be new friends. Could be trying to reconnect with old friends. Going out for drinks with your coworkers after work. Pouring yourself out into your family and uh, taking up all of your time with it. So we, we give ourselves to people to try to avoid pain. Sometimes some people, you're just like, I'm done with people altogether, right? And so you lock yourself in the house, you lock the doors, you watch Netflix, you sleep all day. And so you're like, I'm just completely done with people. Maybe it's social, uh, social network, right? So Facebook, other forms of social media. So you create these false, uh, these false relationships of proximity through a computer screen. And so that's the way we, we fill our relational void with other people people. Another way we could tend to do it is by our possessions. So, so there's pain. So what I need to do is I need retail therapy. So I go out shopping, right? Oprah said it was cool. So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, so we go out shopping and, and it's always some piece, some possession that's going to provide our ultimate happiness. And so we go and we buy the car that we've always wanted. We, we try to, we move into the house or to the apartment. And as soon as you move into the house, you'll recognize that there is something as you, week one, week two, you'll notice all of the problems wrong with it. I don't like the back bedroom, the plumbing. And you'll notice that there's problems in the home. The thing that you always thought would bring you happiness. And now you got to go buy more stuff to fill in that house. So that way you could fill in your heart. And so we're always just buying more and more stuff because the shelf life on happiness is so short. And so we, 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 we avoid pain by purchases and possessions. And another way we do it is by places. So we say, if I can just start over, if I can just get a fresh start, if I could go on a new adventure, right? We get this wonderlust. 
If I could just go on a new adventure, if I could just go to a new city, if I could just go to a new place, then everything is going to be okay. But what we fail to recognize is that wherever you go, that's where you are, and you take you with you everywhere you're at. And so the problem still remains because wherever you're at, that's where you are. And so we can't run from our problems. We can't, we, we can't go to new places, possessions, or people. They may be temporary distractions or a momentary respite, but the problem of pain still remains. And so our first propensity is to try to avoid pain. This is what Habakkuk is at. As he receives the burden, he says, God, I don't want this. He says, God, why? I, I don't I don't want to carry this. So Habakkuk here is wrestling with the problem of pain as well. So the wise question for us to ask is, what activities am I involved in to try to avoid my pain? The second way we try to avoid it is by taking offense at God's decision-making. Let's see what he says here in five. The Lord answers Habakkuk's complaint. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This is the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through with the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not of their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. For they pile up earth and they take it. And then they sweep by like the wind and they go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So Habakkuk is looking around at the nation. Habakkuk is looking around at God's people who have completely turned their back on him. And God's looking around and saying, God, why aren't you doing anything? God, why aren't you listening? God, how could you allow your people to do this? They're murdering each other, child sacrifices, rape, molestation. The kings have gone corrupt. The priests are corrupt. Even in the church, there's violence. God, why are you not doing anything? God, why are you not listening? And God's like, oh no, I'm listening. I'm listening. You see the Babylonians over there? Yeah, they're fixing to come in. That hasty and bitter nation, the one that took the northern kingdom captive years ago, well, they're coming in for you. And Habakkuk's like, whoa, 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 God, that's, I, I don't like that plan. Well, whoa, Habakkuk, just a second ago, you were asking for, for justice and now it's coming. Well, no, I didn't mean justice like that. I, I didn't want you to actually like, like deal with the problem. I just wanted you to kind of like recognize it. No, no, I recognize it and they're fixing to come in and they're gonna take care of it. And Habakkuk's like, no, no, no the Babylonians, they're, they're worse than we are. And, Habakkuk, and God's like, no, no, there's no good people, bad people. It's just me and everybody else, okay? And so it's really Habakkuk's doing the thing to where he's like, well, I may be bad, but they're worse than me, so I must be a good person. How could you use them to come and to judge us? And this is what God is wrestling with Habakkuk, that Habakkuk does not like God's plan. And God is not inactive. God is actively working in that, bringing about his discipline for his people. And so, so this is where Habakkuk is wrestling at. And God says, I'm sending the Babylonians. And even saying this, Habakkuk, you could imagine, is a little offended. Habakkuk's a little offended. Do you not think that this would challenge your perception of God? Would this not challenge your worldview? Maybe even saying this, some of us in the room are kind of like, man, I, I don't know about that. 
yeah, it would be a little bit offensive. And so our natural way to avoid pain is to take offense at God. And then we begin to take offense at God. And I wish that I could tell you that this was an isolated incident. It would be awesome if, as your pastor, I could stand up here and and I could say, hey, you know, like we believe in the Bible. We believe this book. You know, it's true. It's authoritative. It's the final rule and authority in the life of a believer. Um, You know, this, it's a lamp into our feet. It's a light into our path that it is designed for your ultimate joy, except for that book in Habakkuk. Uh, There's that one time, but you don't need to worry about that. Uh, because, you know, like it's buried in the Old Testament. You're never really going to read it anyway. Um, I'd tell you the books that surround it, but you wouldn't be able to pronounce that or know what they are either. So like, it's just, don't worry about it. Just put your kids' sermon notes in there, a little cute picture. Look at the picture. Don't look at the Bible. Like, just, just focus on that. It would be really great if I could stand up here as your pastor and say that, like, that, that this is only an isolated incident, but it's not. That God always offends his best people. God always leads his people into uncertainties. God always offends his best servant. So it would be awesome if I could sit up here and tell you, you know, this is the way it works, but, but that's not the way it works. I, I can't do that. I can't just stand here and preach, you know, self-help sermons because the truth is self-help sermons don't really help. They might make you feel good for a moment, but in the end, they don't bring your ultimate joy because you're left unsatisfied and have to keep coming back. We could say this, it would build a big church. We might could move out to the outskirts of town and we could pack the place out, but it won't get us closer to the Bible. It won't get us closer to the true character of God. Because the second reason is God always offends his best servants. Let's, let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at this biblically. Because uh, in the beginning, uh, in the book of Genesis, you have Abram, right? So Abram is, uh, Abram is a pagan, living in a pagan land. He's worshiping everything but God, worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, everything but God. And then the Bible says in Genesis 13 that Abram found favor in God. God gave Abram favor. Favor is the Old Testament word for grace. So Abram found grace in God. And so God told him, he said, Abram, I'm gonna make a mighty nation out of you that your offspring will be more numerable than the stars and that the seed of salvation for all of the world will come from you. You're gonna be a father of a mighty nation. Abraham, you are my, you are my guy. And Abram's like, yes, this is amazing. God, whatever you want me to do, I'm gonna do it. This is gonna be awesome. Thank you so much for saving me. I've been worshiping everything but you and it's been so unfulfilling. God, what do you want me to do? And God says, go. And he never tells him where. He just says, go. Pack your stuff, take walking. Abraham's like, well, where do I go? I'll let you know when you get there. And so we can see in Isaiah, Isaiah is another prophet. And in Isaiah, um, God's like, hey, Isaiah, you're my guy. Your sermons are kind of boring and the people aren't listening. So what I want you to do is I want you to take off all of your clothes and run around the city naked because that's the only way people are gonna pay attention. Offensive? Isaiah 20. In Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel, uh, the, the nation of Israel has completely turned their back from God. They're worshiping false gods. And so God has Ezekiel lay in the middle of the city, downtown Crockett Street, on his left side for a year. On his left side, 40 days on his right side, a year. He's laying in the middle of the street, preaching on his left side. 
If that wasn't worse enough, God also had him cook his own food over his own excrement. He says, this is what it's like. I want you to do this. And Ezekiel's like, oh God, isn't that a little much? And he's like, okay, you can use cow dung. Offensive? Yeah, and so we can keep going. When we go to Hosea, Hosea, you're my guy, right? You're faithful, you love me. I wanna show you what it's like to be married to the nation of Israel. I wanna show you what it's like for their waywardness. You see that prostitute over there? I want you to go marry her. Her name's Gomer. I want you to be faithful to her. I want you to love her. She's gonna cheat on you. She's gonna run away from you. She's gonna run around on you. She's gonna leave you, but I want you to continue to pursue after her because that's what it's like for me to pursue after my people. Hosea, that's your life. God always calls his best servants into uncertainties. God always offends his best servants. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, well, Byron, that's the Old Testament, right? That's the Old Testament. Like, we don't really, we don't, that's, that's not important because now we have the New Testament. It's a new one. And so, you know, God in the Old Testament, he's kind of stuffy. He's kind of a curmudgeon. You know, he always seems like he's in a bad mood. But now we have Jesus, we have the New Testament. And Jesus, he's all peace, he's love. You know, he's got, you know, blue eye, blonde hair, sweet baby Jesus. It's amazing, like Jesus, right? Well, how does Jesus treat his best followers? Let's keep looking at it. All the followers of Jesus died a martyr's death. All of the followers of Jesus died a martyr's death. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was run through with a spear in India. Mark was tied to horses in the town square and ripped to pieces. John, the beloved, was boiled alive in oil and he didn't die. So they banished him to an island and he still wrote a book of the Bible. Jesus even treated his followers the same way, the call and the commission to go. There's times and uncertainties in that moment. And I know what you're thinking again. You're like, but Byron, that was a different dispensation, right? That was a different dispensation. You know, first there was the prophets and then there was the apostles, but now we live in a different age. Okay, first year Bible student, let's keep going. All right, so how does Jesus treat his best followers today? Well, in the world right now, there are 200 million Christians in over 60 nations who are being denied basic human rights all because they profess faith in the name of Jesus. 200 million Christians being denied basic human rights. Over the last 10 years, 100,000 Christians per year have been martyred for their faith. I got an email update from our missionary in Turkey. And as you know, there's a coup going on right now in Turkey. And I got an email a couple of weeks ago from our missionary in Turkey. And he was asking us to pray for a man that he knows. And this man ordered a Bible online and it was shipped to his house, but they shipped it to the wrong house. And so they shipped it to one of the neighbor's house. The neighbor opened up, found the Bible, gathered the whole village together, went to his house and beat him. And a few months later, after that, they found the man in the field watching his livestock. The whole village found him reading in their Bible. This time they beat him so bad that he was in the hospital. This man is not even a Christian and he's already suffering persecution that you and I would probably never know. God offends his best servants. God leads us sometimes into uncertainties. And so in this moment, what our natural inclination is, is to try to take offense at, at God. And A.W. Tozer says this, 
He says, those who God uses greatly, first he must wound deeply to show us things in our life that we are trusting in other than him. So this is not just an isolated incident for us. So when it comes to reading the scriptures, we can't interpret this book through 21st century lenses. We have to understand that, that God never changes. This is an attribute of his character, that he is immutable. Times change, cultures change, opinions change, but God never changes. That we have the same God of the old is the same God of the new, the same God that delivered the nation of Israel is the same God that saves us from our sins. And so we have to take a God's perspective over the situations and recognize that everything in our life, God is working through it to bring about the ultimate joy in both our lives and the world that we live in. And we have to understand that there may be things that we are uncertain of, but we cannot doubt or cannot uh, accuse God against his sovereignty in that. And so what that leads us to is the third way, which is to question God's character. What we do is we begin to ask God, are you sovereign? Are you who you say you are? This is what he says in verse 13. Habakkuk's complaint after God's response. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment and your rock has established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, the crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his dragnet. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. And he is then to keep on emptying his net, mercilessly killing the nations. What is Habakkuk doing here? He is questioning God's character. He's questioning God's sovereignty. He, if you look at verse 12, it looks almost schizophrenic, right? He, he says, he, he, starting in verse 12, what does he say? He says, are you not from everlasting? What is this? He's saying, God, have you lost your mind? God, are you not from everlasting? Are you really who you said you were? You told me you were good. Lord, I'm looking around. I don't know if you're good. God, I'm looking around. You say you're in control, but at this moment, when I look at this world, it does not feel as if you're in control. So Habakkuk is here questioning God's character. He is questioning God's sovereignty. And I know you and I, like we would never really question God's sovereignty verbally. We affirm it. But when pain, when tragedy, when injustice happen, when catastrophes happen, our natural response is to go, did God cause that? Or did God, did God cause that? Is that God's problem? We begin to question his sovereignty in that. And so, so, so of course, we'd be quick to say, oh no, God did not cause that. He allowed it or he permitted it, which really puts us in the same place philosophically. Because if God could stop it and doesn't, is he the cause behind it? And that's the question. It's a question we wrestle with. Now, I appreciate the, the sentiment, the people who would go say, no, God did not cause that. God is not the ultimate source of evil in the world or injustice because sin wrecks havoc on a fallen world. Because in the beginning, Genesis 1 through 3, God made everything and it was 
good. And then because of our sin, we were separated from God and the earth was fractured and now we live in a fallen world. Sin reigns and sin is the cause for trouble, for pain and injustice. Also in our own lives, sometimes the reason for our suffering is because of our own stupidity. Like we have no one else to blame but ourselves. I made that decision, I need to own that decision. But the question still remains, if God could stop it and doesn't, is he still on the hook for it? And so this is what I love about Habakkuk, though. It's Habakkuk does not just go there. Habakkuk just doesn't, just doesn't go to that place. What he does is he gets up in God's face. He says, God, are you not from everlasting? He goes to God and says, God, I, I, you told me this is who you were. You told me you were not like the other gods made of stone and wood. You told me that you're in control. You told me that you are sovereign. I am questioning. I am in doubt. Lord, I don't understand. God, Why? Can you relate to Habakkuk sometimes? And this is what I love about Habakkuk is that he is just honest. He's just honest with God. That he goes to God and he is honest with him. He's honest in his prayers. He's saying, God, I don't understand. God, I don't get it. God, what are you doing? Have you ever been in this place where you're driving down the road and you're praying prayers like this? You feel almost schizophrenic because at one moment you're crying out, God, I don't feel you. God, you're so far away. God, I don't understand. God, what are you doing? I don't know your plan. God, I love you. Thank you so much. You've been there for me. Lord, all the things you've done. God, please tell me. Please help me. God, what are you doing? You're almost schizophrenic. In the same breath you're questioning God, it's the same breath you're praising him. And this is what you know when you tapped into a solid relationship with God, when your prayers are honest and biblical. That in the Bible, this is what I love so much about the Bible, is in the Bible, like, these people are not perfect. These people aren't, well, that one guy was Jesus, but even Jesus prayed prayers of honesty and lament in the garden, sweating blood. Father, let this cup pass. God, is there another way that is possible? Even Jesus prayed prayers of honesty and God offends Jesus, his best servant as well. Calls him into giving his life. And so, so what I always tell you when it comes to prayer is the only thing that matters to God is that your prayers are just honest. That you would just go to him and that you would just be honest. I'll tell you a story from my own life. Early on in following Jesus, I hit this place in my life to where I was questioning God. And I was saying, God, why? So I hopped in my car and I drove down to the church to pray. Now, I don't know why I'm sitting in the church parking lot because maybe that's where I think God lives, but I'm sitting in the church, my hands gripped to the steering wheel. I'm crying, I am frustrated, and I am angry, and my hands are gripped to the steering wheel. And I'm, I'm, I'm arguing with God. God, why? What are you doing? God, I don't feel you. I don't know if you're real. How could you allow this to happen? My hands are gripped to the steering wheel. I'm crying and I'm fixing to count to three because I'm about to renounce my faith. And I say, God, I don't believe in you. God, I hate you. God, I don't want to do this anymore. If you don't do something, here I am. If you don't do something, I'm done. And so as I'm counting the three, what I'm not thinking is, is I'm fixing to tell a God that doesn't exist that I don't believe in him. Because in the moment, your brain's fractured and running in a thousand different directions and you're not making sense of it. So I'm gripped to the steering wheel and I'm saying, I'm, I'm cursing at God and I'm yelling at God and I'm frustrated. And in the very next moment, I speak in tongues. And I had never done that before. And now, I know not everyone does, 
But that's not the point of what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that in the moment when one breath, you are, you are questioning God and the next breath, he appears. In one moment, whenever you are questioning God, you can also be in the presence of God in the presence of pain. That God will give you a glimpse of himself in that moment. That you can be in the presence of God, even in the presence of pain. And that we can praise him in our problems. And in that moment, he will show us who he is. That if we just pour our heart out to God, then he will be present. Which leads us to our fourth point, which is the correct response. It's for us to pour out our heart to God. And this is what he says in verse 12. He says this. He says, are you not from everlasting? One part, next part, oh Lord, my God, my holy one. So in one breath, he's questioning God. And in the next breath, he is praising God. Oh Lord, my God, my holy one. What is he doing? He is going to God first. This is for us the correct response. For us to go to God. See, I don't go to God first. I don't go to God first. I go everywhere but God first. I go everywhere. I try to, try to, to take care of the problems and the situations first on my own. I, I go to other people to try to handle my problems first. I go to other places first. I, I seek out new possessions first. Right? I get on Facebook and tell the whole world how I feel before I let God know how, he, how I feel first. Right? This is what I do. Like, I try to fix all of the problems myself. I wonder how many of my problems would begin with peace if I were to go to God first. I wonder how many of my anxieties would be alleviated if I were to have just gone to God first. Instead of going everywhere but God to run to God and to pour out my heart to God first. See, we don't pour out our heart to God first. We try to own the situation on ourselves and handle it all and do it on our own. And then we, go, we tend to go to God last. But here we see with Habakkuk, he goes to God first. And some of us, in that moment, God will give you a glimpse of himself. Some of you are thinking, well, hey, I got some questions for God. Good luck with that. God gives you what you need when you need it. And that's one of the hardest parts for people to wrap their head around when it comes to the God of the Bible is that God does what God does. That he doesn't exist to do what we say when we say. It's not our way when we want. It's his way all the time. And so you can have questions for God. We go to God, we ask our questions and he might just give you a glimpse. He might just give you a glimpse of himself. But truthfully, that's more than Abraham got. That's more than Job got. That's more than the other prophets got. That God would give you just a glimpse of himself in that moment, in your need. He shows up, he says, here I am, trust me. For 10 years, I've been following Jesus and I've been following and reading this word. And he has revealed himself to us here. We don't, have to, we don't have to guess or speculate on who God is. That he has given us his word. And so as I read this for 10 years now, as I said before, there's moments where it doesn't make sense. There's moments where I'm uncertain. There's moments where it collides with my opinions and, and the way that I want to live. But I keep following that. And I'll tell you 10 years in, I have no regrets that God has perfectly revealed himself to us through his word. And we can trust in that. And as he shows up, he says, here I am, you can trust me. This is the journey that we're all on. The same journey that Habakkuk is on. It's the journey from questions to faith. 
that we're all on this journey from questions to faith. Here's Habakkuk 2,600 years ago, and here we are, downtown Beaumont, in Crockett Street, same questions, same places, God, why? God, what is happening? God, what is going on? And what you'll notice about Habakkuk is while he has questions, he does not bring accusations against God. He doesn't bring accusations against God. He has questions. Questions that say, God, oh God, God, if you are real, please help. God, if you can, please do. God, if you are there, please let me know. If you are there, please save me. Habakkuk has questions to God. And questions are good. And God is okay with you having questions when it comes to faith. Questions are good. Many of us have questions. Questions are the formation of a solid relationship. Questions are the bridge to knowledge. Questions establish trust. God's okay with you having questions when it comes to your faith, right? Like a child who goes to their dad with questions, builds trust, so we too can go to our heavenly father with our questions. But here's the deal. God does not just want you to stay at questions for the sake of questions. God wants to move you from questioning to faith. Because where questions say, if you are there, please do. Faith would say, God, I know you are there even though I don't see you. God, I know you can save even though it doesn't make sense. God, I will follow you even though I don't understand. God, I know you can, please do. God wants to move us all from questions to faith. So questions are good, but faith is how God responds in our moments of questions and need. When doubt and trust collide, that is where faith grows. And so when you have your questions, go to God first. This is what we were to do, to, to pour out our heart to him. And this is what we, we need to do, but this is not what we do. So how do we learn from Habakkuk? How do we enter into this? How do we own this, connect with it, and make it our, ours? We have to acknowledge the pain, and we have to take it to God. We have to acknowledge the problems in our lives and in the world around us. We can't remain passive. We have to listen. We have to acknowledge it and we have to take it to God first. We can't just keep putting band-aids on all of our problems and expect them to heal. We have to acknowledge the pain and enter into that moment and allow God to use it to bring about his glory to further the mission of God in the world. We are to live by faith. And so I'm praying for us in this series that the Holy Spirit rips the band-aid off and that we recognize the hurts in this church and in the world and we do not remain silent. And we rise up like Habakkuk to proclaim the gospel into a lost and hurting and broken world. And that God wakes us up from our day in, day out so that way we can live by faith. So how do we enter into this? We acknowledge the pain and we take it to God. I wish that as a pastor, I could stand up here and I could say that everything in your life is going to be fine, that you can come to Jesus and everything's going to be perfect. You can sing, you can skip, you can like, you know, sing hymns until the rapture happens and everything's going to be fine, but it doesn't work out that way. That suffering is coming. That job loss is coming that some of you are underemployed, some are unemployed. It's coming. Teenage years for both the parents and the adolescents, it's coming. And so as your pastor, if I don't equip you with the tools to recognize how to embrace pain and suffering and to use it rather than try to avoid it, then I will fail as your pastor and not do the job right. So how do, we, how do we do this? And luckily for us, that I don't have to stand up here and I don't have to come up with my own good advice or tools because Jesus has given us the good news. 
that Jesus entered into that pain, that Jesus entered into that suffering, that he suffered on your behalf. And so people would ask all the time, well, God, why is there so much injustice? If God was real, then, then why is there so much pain? And while we may be left with the question, why, we can see what it's not. It's not that he doesn't care because he entered into that. God stood at the edge of heaven, sent his son Jesus to die the most heinous and horrific death known to man. That the cross was the most scandalous moment in all of human history. That the cross was the most unjust thing that ever happened. That, that the, the guiltless would be in exchange for the guilty. That God would die for man. That his suffering for your suffering, that his sinlessness for your sinful life that he would trade that so you could be in union with him forever. So when we look at the cross, we may not understand what in the world the answers are, but we look at the cross, we understand what the answer is not. It is not that God is not active in our lives. That God loved so much that he entered into the suffering so we don't have to suffer alone. And that one day, the tears will be wiped away. One day we will understand. One day we will see God face to face. And until that day, we just live by faith. And so for some of us, when we look around, we feel pain, we feel suffering, and we feel as if we are disconnected from God. And that's because you are. You are separated from God because you don't believe in him, you don't trust him, you don't follow him, and you are your own God. And you live your life as your own God trusting in yourself for salvation. The Bible says for that person, you are under the wrath of God. The person who trusts in themselves for their own salvation. You are separated from God and you live your life as if you're your own. And you may have some questions for God and that's good. You need to go to God with your questions instead of making accusations against him. But I have some questions for you. In your pain, in your suffering, as you live your life, how is that working for you? How is that working for you? You may have accusations or you may have questions when it comes to God, but here's some questions that we have to ask ourselves. We have to look at ourselves and seriously ask ourselves a couple of questions. Because for me, nobody has lied to me more than I have. Nobody has let me down more than I have. Nobody has betrayed me more than I have. Nobody has disappointed me more than I have. Now, what kind of God is that? See, God tells us plainly who he is. God tells us plainly what he has done. God gives us himself. And he says, trust me in that. And so C.S. Lewis would say this. He would say, pain is God's megaphone to wake us up. Pain is God's megaphone. And for some of you, God is shouting at you today. God is shouting at you in your pain to wake up and to come to him. And the good news is you don't have to wait. You can do that today. And for others of us, Believers, you feel as if you are in pain and suffering and that is God's judgment upon you. Wrong answer. That God's judgment has been poured out on Jesus on the cross. And so as God pours out his cup, that cup is empty on you. That God is not judging you in that. God is not wrathful towards you in that because you're under the grace of God. And so your suffering is redemptive and not punitive. Your suffering can bring about sanctification. Your story could be shared across the world to further his glory, that God is working on you to show you things that you are trusting in other than himself. And so this is the purpose of calling us all 
to wake up. And here's what makes Christianity so unique as we call the band forward, is that, is that in Christianity, we see that, that Jesus entered into our pain, that Jesus entered into our suffering and that he does not leave us alone. He does not leave us alone. He is not inactive, but he is very active in the life of the believer, always encouraging us and equipping us and empowering us to live a life by faith. So as a church, this is what I want us to do. My challenge for all of us is to go to God first. To go to God first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son, for your goodness, for your mercy, for your grace. We praise you for your name. Lord, you are good. Even though we don't understand everything, Father, you are good. Even though we don't have all of the answers, God, you are good. And we'll spend the rest of our lives seeking after you, following you, trusting in you. Lord, thank you for the church that encourages us. Thank you for the spirit that empowers us. And thank you for the word that leads us and guides us. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that may be heartbroken and heavy laden, Father, that the Holy Spirit would give them the rest that you promise. Lord, we thank you for your work, for your big picture of redemption across the world. We praise you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey guys, we do communion every week. Communion for us is a sign of faith that Jesus died in our place and so faithfully we rise as if we were to rise from the grave like we will in the future. We go to the bread and the cup. We tear a piece off. We dip it into the cup as a symbol of what Jesus has done for us when he shed his blood. So we do that as an act of faith, saying that, Jesus, you shed your blood for me, and so I'm going to participate in your life. I'm going to participate in your death. And then we're going to worship. We're going to sing a song as we do it, which is in faith, remembering what we're going to do in heaven. And in heaven, we're going to sing and we're going to worship and so we do that in faith as well. We also take of our tithes and offerings, which is a sign of faith, that by faith we give because God's gonna give us an opportunity to do it again. And so what we're gonna do, if you guys would stand with me, we're gonna worship. I'm gonna bless communion. I invite you as the spirit leads, as Jesus leads you to take communion. It's on either side of the room. It's a simple act. You just pull the bread off, dip it in the cup and pray. Uh, come back to your seat, worship with us. And um, then we'll receive offering and um, head out from today. So Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The body of Christ given for you. Thanks be to God. The blood of Christ shed for you. Thanks be to God. Tables are open. The altars are open. If you're waiting for God to speak to you, he does so today. I invite you to come and receive prayer. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you'd like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us at 10.30 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption and we would love to meet you.